I'm Carrie Miller, and this is a show about big books and bold ideas. Dan Shore comes to his fiction debut with deep experience as a sex crimes prosecutor and investigator. And the book mirrors the complexity of accountability for sexual misconduct crimes and the ambiguity that exists in public opinion about it. Think of how long the singer and convicted sex offender R. Kelly was protected by the people around him who cared only that he was making hit music. Remember how many people in Hollywood knew or had heard what went on in the hotel suites of film producer Harvey Weinstein? He was convicted of third-degree raping criminal conduct in February of 2020. And recall how Bill Cosby's supporters rallied around him even after he was found guilty of drugging and molesting Andrea Constant, even after more than a dozen women came forward to detail their own stories of his sexual misconduct. His conviction was overturned on a prosecutorial issue in June. We live in a culture that is still deeply uneasy with holding high-profile offenders accountable. And that turns up in the fiction that Dan Shore has written. That's where we'll begin. Dan Shore is a lawyer and a sexual misconduct investigator at his law firm in White Plains, New York. His new novel is titled Final Table. And he joins us from New York. And welcome, Dan. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to speak with you. I want to talk about the conspiracy of silence that someone like R. Kelly or Andrew Cuomo, you happen to live in his his state, or Harvey Weinstein relies on. So as the misconduct goes on, these offenders know that there's an increasing number of people who are entangled in this web of silence, and I assume they count on that. What do perpetrators, in your experience and your your uh, knowledge about how these how this misconduct often unfolds. What do these perpetrators often rely on? Well, often these perpetrators are in powerful positions, whether it's a governor, whether it's a popular person who's a movie star or a singer or a film producer, and they often have powerful connections to hurt other people's careers. So I think we hear a lot about people who are experiencing sexual misconduct or sexual assault and the trauma they go through. But beyond that, there's the very realistic fear of retaliation and major career damage if someone speaks up, that if you accuse someone who's powerful, they could end your career. And we saw that with the Andrew Cuomo accusers, that a lot of people had gotten into government. They wanted to have some kind of community service in their career. And they knew that their careers really depended on on the governor and his appointees deciding who gets a promotion, who gets access to important assignments. And a complaint could derail someone's career, and it has. And that's one of the really difficult things for someone to come forward with a complaint. What's interesting about that is, as I think about this in kind of the concentric circles of knowledge, I understand what you're saying about, you know, the tight circle around the person and his, uh, you know, the people that surround him who who are hiding this. But what we're seeing in many of these cases is even as you move further out in these circles, there are enablers, there are people who say, well, it's not my role to, you know, disclose this knowledge. I mean, I I find that puzzling that as you get further away from some of these 
these perpetrators, you're still finding a culture of not my problem. I don't want to take the heat for this. And I, and I wonder if you have some insight on why that is. You know, people often feel if I'm the one who speaks up, then I'm going to be punished. And people may see some wrongdoing, but they feel I have a lot of pressure in my life. I'm trying to keep my career afloat. I have a mortgage. I have a family. If I start speaking up about what I've seen, I'm going to be fired or I'm not going to have a successful career. And it's important that people do step up and they do support people. But especially in the halls of power, people often feel it's easier just to keep my head down, not cause a ruckus and hope that this gets resolved. And with the Andrew Cuomo situation that we talked about, it's really interesting because if you look at the public comments from him and people who worked for him, they were on the front lines of reforming sexual harassment laws, sexual assault laws. And then there was new trainings that were required, new reporting structures, like all the right things to do. And yet people internally were reporting sexual harassment and, and it was going nowhere. People high up were squashing it, not reporting it, not referring it. So, and you see that a lot where people publicly say all the right things, but when it's tough for them to stand up and do something, they fail. And that's very concerning. You know, so I think of this as the dual facade that many of these these perpetrators present. I mean, you've got, as you say, Governor Cuomo was this influential advocate for women's policy and advancement. Bill Clinton was too. Harvey Weinstein gave a lot of money to women candidates, including Hillary Clinton. Jeffrey Epstein gave money to women's causes. So I guess what I've wondered about that is, is it calculated misdirection on the part of the person at the center of this? Is it some kind of entitlement? Is it really a lack of, I don't know, self-knowledge? What do you think? I think a lot of it is about powered control and feeling emboldened to do whatever you want, that a lot of people are surrounded, successful people, whether it's in politics or entertainment, they're surrounded by people who praise them all the time. And they feel based on experience, so it's not a delusion, that they can get away with just about anything. So I think they, they know they're smart enough to know what to say publicly, know what to do. But in their personal and professional life, they haven't had consequences for misdeeds. And that emboldens people. And when I've investigated cases like this, I've hardly ever seen someone who just does something egregious without having somewhat of a track record doing smaller things in the past that didn't have any consequences. And people get more emboldened over time, say, oh, I got away with that. How about can I get away with this? So stopping misconduct early on is really important. Okay, so... So if you're Governor Cuomo, and let's just let's stipulate that you have not, I assume, investigated in any sexual misconduct that involves Governor Cuomo, or have you? No, no, I haven't. Okay, so we're talking about this from the outside, not with any internal knowledge. But if you're Governor Cuomo, and you present this, this uh, facade, I guess, as I called it, of being an advocate for women, How do you reckon that internally with the kind of behavior that you know there have been complaints about and that you know is threatening? I mean, at some point, some of these people must feel threatened because they spend a lot of time quashing these kinds of complaints. I guess I'm just wondering, you know, how do you make those dual facts work? 
That's a question that it's hard to answer because it does seem like how could someone who understands these issues enough to speak eloquently about them、right. and also not recognize what they were doing and not recognize the consequences? But for some reason, certain people feel they are beyond consequence. And again, that's not always a delusion. It may be because for many, many years they have treated people in a bad way, and there have and there have been no consequences. So if someone's a film producer like Harvey Weinstein. Who, based on many credible reports, was sexually assaulting people for years? He certainly logically would realize, "Hey, I can do this, and nothing is going to happen to me." So, if you take away the moral component of it and you just look at what is he considering as a cost-benefit analysis, he had a lot of reason to think, "You know what? No one's going to come after me. There are no consequences." And often, it takes a groundswell of people to come out, whether it's Harvey Weinstein or Andrew Cuomo or someone else. To show, look, this is widespread, and therefore it's credible. Because when one person comes out alone, the Im- initial reaction—and this was with Harvey Weinstein and with Governor Cuomo and other people—the first person who comes out is widely condemned by a lot of those person supporters, and that intimidates other people from coming out. So often there's safety in numbers because then people can't ignore when five, ten people are coming out. But the problem is, what if only one person has been sexually assaulted or sexually harassed? There's a real feeling. No one's going to believe me. What do I do if I report this? Is this going to hurt my career? Whether I'm trying to be an actress or I'm trying to rise in government and help people through government service, what's going to happen to me if everyone sees me as that troublemaker who made an accusation that a lot of people didn't believe against this beloved figure? And that's a really difficult situation to be in. Since we've talked about Harvey Weinstein,、uh, and I and I hoped we would, I, I was interested to hear your insight on that. I was reading something that. Jody Cantor and Megan Tuohy, the two investigative reporters for the Times, who were instrumental,、yep. uh, some of the reporters who broke that story open, and they they were reflecting a couple years after that about what is going on with Me Too, and they were talking about this to Vanity Fair, and here's what they said: This is Jody Cantor. It's confounding because everything's changed and nothing's changed. On the one hand, we've been through a seismic social shift and a change in attitude, and things that were accepted, tolerated, dismissed a couple of years ago are now taken much more seriously. On the other hand, our basic systems for preventing and dealing with these problems have barely changed at all. Nothing has happened that says to us legally and structurally, the United States is taking a new approach to this problem. So, Dan. I'd love to hear you talk about this legally, since you're an attorney and you head up a firm and you do a lot of this work. But I also want to hear you talk about this culturally. So maybe you'll tackle the legal side of this. Is she right that not much has changed legally? A lot has changed over the last three years since the Me Too movement started. It's certainly not enough, but I could tell you as someone who's been investigating these kinds of cases, first as a sex crimes prosecutor and now as a private sector investigator for over twenty years, there's a major difference between. How a lot of organizations handle these matters now versus three or four years ago. Whether it's educational institutions or corporations, there are new policies in place. Often, there are new places independent of the organization who are brought in as investigators. When it usually before would be a supervisor would investigate it, and the supervisor might have had a good reason to squash a complaint. But now they're often referred to outside people who make. Independent reports, so that's a major difference. Is also a major emboldening of people who have experienced misconduct for years to now 
report it and say something and there's support, but they are right that misconduct is still occurring, cover-ups are still occurring, people are still being retaliated against in major ways for stepping up and talking about misconduct. So I think a lot of the societal instincts of people who are either sexual harassers or sexual abusers or their enablers, that's continuing. But there is a different climate for people to report things now. And I think people are also taking complaints more seriously than they often did a few years ago. And that's in large part to their reporting and people's understanding of these issues that I don't think people had just three or four years ago. So do you think it is easier today to get a case that involves sexual misconduct or harassment into our criminal justice system than it was before Me Too? Sexual harassment doesn't fall into criminal justice for a lot of reasons. It has to rise to a certain level of sexual assault or forcible touching. Sexual harassment alone is not a criminal penalty. So in that respect, there certainly isn't a criminal solution to someone who's sexually harassing people. But there are more avenues to get civil protection, employment protection, to have independent investigators come in. Title IX laws have been reformed through the regulatory process and other ways so that people who are experiencing this in educational institutions have more avenues to get justice. But they're absolutely correct that the criminal law has not addressed this in a way that someone's going to face criminal penalties generally for sexual harassment. So I think I I heard you saying culturally, on, on this dimension of it, people are more willing to come forward and say that they have experienced this kind of misconduct. What happens, do you think, within the structure of a company, an organization, an institution, when those complaints are brought forward? I mean, does the culture, I guess, reach to the top and all the way through the bottom? Are you seeing evidence that organizations themselves are doing more than just kind of talking the talk? There is a tremendous variety of how people are responding, and some organizations are still toxic workplaces, and I see that through my work and also through other professional contacts. Some are well-meaning and trying to reform and give people avenues to report. And then when there is an instance of sexual harassment in an office, a big question that we ask in our investigations that's really important is how isolated was this? And even if it was just one person who was conducting the sexual harassment, it's really important to ask, well, who knew about this? Mm -hmm. So even if people higher up in the company weren't a part of it, if they knew about it and they allowed it to continue and they didn't stop it, then that is being complicit in an environment that is very damaging in people's lives and careers. So that's really important. I think an, a major point here is that, and this is a cynical point, a lot of organizations only do what is in their own best interest, <laughs> not necessarily what's right morally. And I think a big thing about the Me Too movement that's really helpful is that it has made it more in companies and institutions' best interests to address sexual harassment. So even if they're not doing it for the right reasons, they now have a lot of pressure through some legal reforms, some cultural reforms to say, oh, there's some sexual harassment accusation in, in our workplace. We're going to bring in someone independent. We're going to take it seriously. We're going to have meaningful consequences. And even if that's not because they morally have shifted in how they feel about it, it might be just because of business pressure to do it. 
but that pressure didn't exist a few years ago. The pressure a few years ago was, let's hide this, let's make it go away, let's maybe do a settlement with a non-disclosure agreement, and then we could leave the person in place who's doing it, and if they offend again with someone else, we'll deal with it then. That's changing a little bit, not enough, but it's changing. I think I hear you saying their their perception perception of the sphere of self-interest has broadened. Again, they're not doing this out of often out of some kind of moral or altruistic uh, impulse, but they perceive that this sphere of boy, this is this could be damaging to the company has broadened from where it used to be. Is that right? Right. Let's say you're in charge of a company and forget morality. Let's say you're not making moral considerations. You're just making business decisions and you have Mm -hmm. a manager in your company who's really good productively and you find out he's sexually harassing two people who work under him. If this is five years ago, the, the instinct might be, okay, there are people making complaints. Let's try to give them some kind of settlement. Maybe let's try to change who they're reporting to, which may damage their career, by the way. But let's try to make this go away, keep it quiet, and it won't hurt us. Now, I think the business instinct, not even the moral instinct, but the business instinct is if this becomes public that we didn't do anything about this, we're going to have a lot of problems from our customer base, from other people. So we need to really make sure we investigate it thoroughly, that it's done independently so no one can say that we tried to cover it up. We don't want this person to do it to other people because that may lead to other scandals and other litigation. So I think there's this business pressure now and societal pressure that didn't exist a few years ago to address sexual harassment. Now, I don't want to say no one is a good actor. There are people who really have had an awakening over the last three or four years to say, I wasn't aware of this going on, and now I am, and I want to be more responsible about it. Or I didn't realize how serious it was. I think often sexual harassment was very dismissed by people who thought, well, you know, people just need to handle that. That's just part of being in a workplace. And now that attitude has changed for a lot of people, although not everyone, that no, this is something that could really be debilitating to someone's life and career. So as an investigator, is it easier these days, as you pursue these cases, to get people to talk about this and to get people beyond the people that have experience to talk about it? Or are you, I wonder if you're kind of seeing a a tightening up again, these years after Me Too? There, it's definitely more likely that people are going to speak with me now and when I'm investigating something than five years ago or 10 years ago. I definitely see a difference in terms of people being willing to speak. Organizations often have policies against retaliation so that if someone does speak up, they can't be retaliated against afterwards. The problem with those is there are very subtle re- ways you could also retaliate against someone. So if someone's up for a promotion, they don't get it. How do you prove that that was because of the complaint they made or because they spoke with an investigator. But putting that aside, people, I think, understand now that there are general some protections. But, and this is something that I dealt with in my novel a lot, there are real fears of retaliation that are based on actual facts. So someone feeling, well, if I report them being sexually harassed, I'm going to have my career severely hurt, possibly. That's based on real things that have happened. And People have experienced that. Even people who have been generally believed to have made high-profile accusations have had problems getting hired in other positions, finding clients, and just having a a career that they wanted to have. And that's a problem that we see. We see that in the television industry, there are some high-profile female journalists who have raised sexual harassment claims, and and the ones who have been widely believed are still having trouble getting 
jobs at new networks and new placements because other organizations say, you know, we just want to stay away from this. And that's a that's a tragic consequence of bringing forward a complaint that even if it's found credible, it may hurt your career. And some people say, you know, I just don't want to risk that. And that's very sad. So um, I noticed that you're going to be interviewed for one of your your book events by Gretchen Carlson. Is she one of the people you're thinking of when you say, look, there was evidence for this. She was believed. And yet her reputation has been damaged, too, for no good reason. Well, I think Gretchen is doing very, very well. She has a charity that supports sexual harassment causes. She's out there in the media. She has her own projects. So I think she's still very successful. But there are other people who have made accusations who have not gotten new jobs, even though they were very successful where they were before. And it, and I think that it's very prevalent that other organizations, even if they cover a sexual harassment scandal and they say that they're against sexual harassment, that's a different thing than saying, here's someone who's very talented, but they brought this complaint and lawsuit against their former employer. Do we want to risk that? Do we want to bring that person on board? Why don't we just hire someone else who's safer? And it's just, it, that's really sad because this is regarding people who are very talented, very believed. And it's not just in the entertainment industry. There are other employers, it, you know, if, when people are looking at who to hire and they say this person brought a complaint of sexual harassment at their former employer, maybe we should stay away. And, and that's something that I try to portray in my book, that that is a major consequence of bringing a complaint and we need to change that. And that's harder to do because it's not just about changing laws. Like, how do you force someone to hire someone who's qualified? Right. They could always they could always give another explanation and say, oh, you know, sh this person's great, but we found someone else. And, and, and that's a major problem that people face. And you have people who are experiencing misconduct who are in this horrible situation of, I had this job that I loved. All of a sudden, it is a nightmare to work here. It's, uh, it's, it's a toxic environment. I'm being mistreated every day. What do I do that doesn't sabotage everything I've worked for? And people are having to make those difficult choices. And there's no easy answer. And sometimes there's no correct answer. I mean, it is so infuriating because... And, and you know what I'd be curious about is whether men and women executives, let's just say within within media, have the same kind of calculation, Dan, which is, sure, she was courageous and brave for coming forward to address what was going on in that workplace, but we still see her as a risk. And here's a company that is likes to see itself as risk averse. What, what's your I mean, is this just the kind of calculation that is made if you're in the upper echelons of a company? In some places, yes. And it you know, extends beyond sexual harassment. You see this. I think this is a problem with racial discrimination claims that someone brings a claim of racial discrimination right. and they're trying to find another you know, workplace. And it's like, oh, you know, do we want to be the next person accused, even though, you know, we, that person was probably telling the truth, but do we really want to risk that? And there's this real scary consequence to bringing a claim of being the stereotypical person who's causing trouble, and we don't want that person. We want to have the person who's safe, who's not going to rock the boat. And it's not just for the people bringing complaints, it's the people speaking to investigators and corroborating complaints. And that's the decision often when someone in a workplace knows about harassment and decides, should I escalate this to someone else? Or should I just say, well, this will be sorted out. I don't want to get involved. I don't want to stick my neck out. And the more people that do speak up, 
the more that there won't be these negative consequences because people will say, okay, a few people are saying they saw this, that corroborates that, and hopefully that will show that there is misconduct going on. The more people that stay quiet, the more easy it is to retaliate against someone, whether it's in that place or in their next attempted job. So these are all decisions that people have to make. Hopefully one thing that's been beneficial about the Me Too movement is that people, some people, not everyone, feel more of a moral responsibility to take this seriously. It's not enough people, but I think it's a lot more people than there were three or four years ago. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas. Our guest is Dan Shore. He's an experienced sexual, sexual misconduct investigator and a, and a former prosecutor. And he's out with his first novel titled Final Table. As you listen to the conversation, I'd love to hear about perhaps your own experience with this and your thoughts about what Dan is saying. You can tweet in at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. So, Dan, in the novel, as noted uh, in the introduction here, you create this scenario of sexual misconduct that is quite ambiguous. It was, uh, well, you can tell, you know, what you're what you're writing about. I mean, you can see your experience on the page. I think we can leave many of the details to the reader, but but I I want to get a sense of why you created this sexual misconduct scenario that had so many dimensions and complexities to it. Well, first of all, when people think of sexual assault and they see sexual assault in the media, it's usually depicted in a sense of a stranger lurking in a dark alley, assault someone, or for children, a child playing in a playground and some stranger swoops in and abducts them and molests them. And having investigated these cases for a long time, sure, those things do happen, but much more often is someone being assaulted by someone they know, someone they trust, someone who, they're in, who they think is, they could be safe with in a room where no one else is around. Often the cases I investigate when they're sexual assault cases involve consensual sexual activity where someone then draws a line. People, you know, especially when I'm doing college campus investigations where people are willing to have some kind of sexual interaction, but then say, I'm willing to go here, but not further, which is obviously mm -hmm. very common with people who are single. And the other person then ignores that line. And then there's the issue of, will people believe me if I report this because I was willingly sexually participating with them, but I said, I don't want to do this. And, and that's a major issue. And, and I don't want to give a spoiler away, but the type of sexual misconduct depicted in this book is something that I've seen a lot lately in my complaints Have that I've been you? investigating. My yeah. Um, on, mostly, on mostly on college campuses. I do a lot of campus Title IX investigations. I've seen so many complaints of this issue. And the complaints are also coming from men, by the way. I've had cases really? of, with men, um, also with women, you know, men who are having sexual relationship with another man having this complaint. So I don't want to give it away, but this is something that I see a lot of. And California just passed a law to ban this type of misconduct. It's mm. the first day in the country to do so. So it's, it's definitely, I wanted to show what I think is a real portrayal of what happens during sexual assault. And the reaction by the main character who experiences it also, I was trying to show what I see in people I interview. The first stage is often doubting oneself and right. am I overreacting? Am I taking this, you know, and, like, and the, the character here isn't running to make a report. She wants to first talk with the person and try to get some understanding about it and figuring out like, how do, how do I just move on? How do I just put this aside? Like, I'm not looking for anything to come out of this other than that it's not a problem in my life. 
And there's a lot of misplaced self-blame among sexual assault survivors. I see that over and over again where I'm interviewing someone. And even in much more extreme cases where I interview people who's violently sexually assaulted, I hear people talk about, you know, I kind of did this wrong, I did that wrong. And I think it's really important to tell people, you know, it's not your fault. You might've put yourself in a vulnerable position because you trusted this person, or, you know, maybe you drank more than you thought you should. That doesn't give someone the ability to sexually assault you or doesn't give someone the right to. But this misplaced self-blame, self-doubt, feeling of like, what do I do? Wanting justice, but not sure what justice is. Does justice mean the person who I may be in a relationship with gets punished, thrown out of school, put in jail? Is that justice? Mm -hmm. Especially with intimate partner violence situations, because sexual assault is a big part of domestic violence and intimate partner violence. It could be someone that someone's had a sexual relationship with for years that then sexually assaults them. And then the question is, well, what do I want to come out of this? And then there's even more complicated situations that I see when someone is, especially when I was a prosecutor, where you may have children with the other person and a, and a life and a family. And then there's community pressure not to rock the boat and not to get someone in trouble. And what if you're economically dependent on this other person and then they go to jail? And then how do you support your children. So th there's a lot of complications here that I, I try to show some of them here. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that you've, it, among the ingredients that you've used to create this, this, you know, this situation as part of the novel is, is you've created a dimension of asymmetrical power. I mean, this woman who is trying to decide what to do about this assault that has occurred. Again, that in a situation that she willingly went into, and then things changed. I mean, she's in she has to make all of these calculations about what's going to how she's going to be seen, what's going to happen if she makes these allegations against someone that is in the culture she lives in more powerful. And, and as I read that, I thought, you know, that you don't have to be in Washington, D.C., to have a to have this kind of asymmetrical power play out. I mean, you talk about, you know, being on college campuses. But there's a there's probably fertile ground for this perception of asymmetrical power. And I would think the details of this play out there too, do they? Absolutely. And I think the biggest example of that among students on a college campus is the star athlete who right. sexually assaults someone. And if you're the person who does that, and that person is suspended and can't play in a huge game, the wrath of that school will come down on you. I and mean, that is just a reality that people are terrified of, for good reason. And, and that's really a problem. And, and whether it's an athlete or someone else who's popular, accusing someone who is beloved, we, we started the interview talking about celebrities, whether it's in music or movies, you know, the person who is accusing someone who people really feel is a good person. And that's also part of the, the, the feeling of self-doubt people feel and the fear of going forward is everyone loves this person. Are they really going to believe me? Who am I to accuse, you know, whether it's R. Kelly or Harvey Weinstein, like, are they going to believe me or this like person who people love and adore and praise and is on TV getting honored? You, you've also delved into uh, the reputational stakes and the complexity of social media. Oh, my God. Wow. Kind of made my head hurt. But it, is, but it is real in the kind of culture that we live in. And I, I guess I'm – I guess this reinforced 
what what I'm starting to believe about the overwhelming pernicious effect of social media in these in these situations. I know and and it's interesting to say that because me too you know played out on social media and gained acceptance and interest because of social media. But the things that this character experiences in your novel are very are really real, especially again in the calculation as to whether you're going to you're going to come forward. So so where do you come down on what social media does in this in this culture of sexual misconduct, whether it's a force for good or a pernicious force? Like a lot of things, some people use it for good and some people use it for bad. The Me Too movement has led to a lot of great things, a real awakening and a reckoning in society. It would not have happened without social media. The accusations against Harvey Weinstein spread through social media, even though they were initially reported in the New York Times and other places. We talked about the Andrew Cuomo accusations. They were first put out through social media, and then other people talked about their experiences. So it has given people a platform unfiltered, especially for someone who's not in power, unfiltered to get their story out. That is extremely important, and that is helpful for people who are experiencing misconduct and want to talk about it. On the other hand, it's given a new way for people to harass and terrorize other people in ways that were unimaginable before, where you know someone can, their identity, they might be private person, but someone could be what's called doxxed, where their personal information is given out, their phone number, their email, their address, and all of a sudden, a bunch of anonymous, crazy people can either go to their location or, in reality, hurt somebody. But even mm-hmm. without getting to the physical interaction, harass. When someone is before social media, having an issue, and I, I hear this about this with high school stalking, for instance, or um, bullying, that it used to be that like one, maybe once you went home, even though it was still a part of your life, you could get away, or if your family moved, you were away. But now these, the, the harassment that's terrorizing is everywhere, wherever you go. It's always there. It's everywhere. Everyone knows about it. You can't get away from it. And, that, and people can do it with anonymity, which emboldens people to be really evil at times. So do you believe the protestations of Mark Zuckerberg and, you know, some of the others that run these social media megaliths? Um, Well, we're doing pretty much everything that we are capable of doing. Yes, we care about these issues. Or do you look at this and say, you know, solving a lot of what you've just described the bullying, the terrorizing, the harassing on social media isn't all that difficult. I, I'd be interested in what you think. I'm, I'm sure they could do more, but it is really difficult. If you just think about it logistically, you have millions, if not billions of people on social media saying, and a lot of them, a lot, are saying horrific things about other people and hurting them. How do you police all that? And also, you're, you're not going to have the manpower to look at every person's tweet and say, this is good, this is not bad. Imagine if there was a filter and a human being that looked at everything you put on social media and said, okay, we'll approve this. You know, so, so they try to do it with automation and, and you know, screening. But then how do you do that? How do you say, okay, these certain words, you know, if it's artificial intelligence, these words we're going to ban or this topic we're going to ban? Because then you have also issues of free speech and people expressing themselves. And it's scary to me sometimes. I know people say the government should regulate more. But it scares me of like, is the government going to tell people what topics are right 
for social media to allow and what are not right, because we know that can go to a dangerous place also. So there's no easy solution here. It really, to me, comes down to a lot of, about human nature, which there are a lot of people, especially with anonymity, right. who love the, the public assault. They love a public hanging, you know, that like, like, you know, centuries ago, people would get in the square and cheer if someone was hanged. People love that now. Even when someone does something that's wrong, you see on social media how gleeful people is, how gleeful people are. And that just serves me sometimes also because I'll say, yeah, this person did something that's bad, like something was uncovered from five years ago where they said something that was, you know, offensive. But then the gleefulness of people to condemn and ban and and it's it's really it's a tough problem. So yeah, more can be done, but you have to change human nature to solve the problem. Uh, and well, I don't think we're changing human nature anytime. I know your description of that reminded me of that young woman who I think was selected to be the head of Teen Vogue, and then, right? I was thinking about that also. Okay, you were. Uh, You know, somebody digs up something uh, discriminatory and ridiculous that she put on social media five years before. Well, I don't know, sixteen or seventeen years old, and this is going to. I get the sense it's going to dog her for years of her career. We should say she apologized for it and acknowledged that she was young and stupid. Yeah, I mean, I'm old enough that social media wasn't around when I was younger. And I can't imagine that if I was active on social media at 16 and 17, that everything <laughs> would be something that I'd approve of when I'm 48. Like, I, just, I just can't imagine. I just don't think that would happen. So... It's really, you know, I've heard a lot of people say, like, they're so glad social media was not around when they were younger. And it's, a, you know, it gives people abilities to go after people. And another thing I tried to show in, in the book is some people, sometimes people are doing this for their own political purposes. Right. And I see this with sexual harassment or sexual assault allegations against politicians, where you have multiple people, in my opinion, and opinion of others accusing then President Trump of sexual harassment and Democrats or some, not all, we have to follow up on these, we have to investigate these. And then many Republicans were like, no, 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 no. And then as soon as the allegations against Andrew Cuomo came out, there were many, but not all Republicans. I'm in New York and I saw this in New York. Republicans who had said nothing about the allegations against President Trump were like, we have to do something. We have to <laughs> you know, resign. Right? And, and some Democrats, at least initially, but not all, were, you know, wait, 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 you know, we don't know right. all the facts. And I feel like people on both sides, not all, but a lot of people, it's like, wow, this is so exciting that someone in the other party was accused of sexual harassment, because now we get to be the the (laughs) anti-sexual harassment people. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, it's like, and then you get to hold a press conference and say, we need to end this type of misconduct. But if it happens to someone on your side, it's, well, you know, who's to believe this person? And I see that people are using this for their own ends. And that goes back to what I said about businesses before, is that unfortunately, and I don't mean to be too cynical, I think a lot of people are reacting to stop sexual harassment or sexual assault because it's in their own interests. And if that's the only thing that gets them to do that, that's better than them not doing it. But we'd like to get to a place where more people just morally feel it's wrong and need to step up and do something. So there is a parallel narrative, and, and I think this, this kind of comes to what we're talking about with social media. There's a, a poker player. He's a champion poker player. He's got a messy personal life, and he is also in a position of cringing basically every time he looks at social media. And he's – I mean, he is in a different way – 
you know, taking on kind of the potential reputational assault that goes on on social media. I thought it was interesting that you, both of these characters who ultimately end up meeting and working together, are dealing with the, what I call the pernicious effect of social media. And I, I kind of wondered about your in, your intentionality on that. Right. For him, it's about embarrassing details of his family and relationship with his wife that become public and social media is extremely gleeful and also his own financial um, problems and how that becomes fodder for social media. And I thought that was really important to show because it's not just about harassment and and people who are committing harassment or experiencing. It's also other people's embarrassing things in their lives when, and you see this sometimes with movie stars or athletes where something embarrassing happens to them that doesn't necessarily involve misconduct, but people love posting the video. It goes viral and you know everyone's so excited about that. And he's trying to deal with that. And one thing I tried to show both with him and with the female character who's dealing with the fallout from the sexual harassment is that your life doesn't stop when this all gets public. So people who are, right. you know, most of us are have, have busy, stressful lives. We're balancing a job and a career and maybe family and fin- finances and all that. And then if you're in the middle of a high profile scandal like this, you don't get to say, okay, I'm going to take a break with my other responsibilities to deal with this. Like you need to right. still, like I still, I'm trying to make a living. I'm still trying to take care of my family. So you know, he's dealing with that. And she is also like, she's in a major career crisis at the time this happens and is trying to build a consulting career. She's been very successful as a White House official beforehand. And it's kind of a situation where she doesn't want to have to deal with this, but it was thrust upon her. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to my Friday book show, and I'm having a conversation with Dan Shore. He is an experienced lawyer and sexual misconduct investigator, and you've heard us uh, explore the the nature of his experience and how he uh, how that informed the new novel that he's out with. His first novel. It's called Final Table. As you're listening to the conversation, would love to hear your thoughts via Twitter. Yes, via social media on uh, on what we've said about the state of sexual misconduct and the effect of social media on our lives. So you can tweet in. It's at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. See, I'm a hypocrite, Dan. I'm Even as I'm talking about the pernicious effect of social media, I'm asking people to weigh in on social media. Are, are you on social media very much? Yeah, I am. And I, I, I love that. I do that all the time. Also, I'm like, hey, I wrote this novel that really shows how evil um, social media is. If you want to learn more, please follow me on Twitter. So it's like, Right. So, yeah. yeah so absolutely. at least we know so, what we are. <laughs> well, but, but going back to what I said before, I think people use it for good, people use it for evil, and I hope we are both using it for good. Other All people right. may not, maybe they won't think so, but, you know, I, I think we both are. <laughs> so there are a lot of ways to tell a story, particularly with, with the experience that you have uh, and the themes that you've engaged in in the novel. So, you know, what occurred to me as I re- was reading the novel, I would have read a nonfiction, a compelling nonfiction book that you wrote about your experience uh, and your work on sexual misconduct. So so tell me why choose the vehicle of fiction to explore these ideas. 
Well, thank you for saying that. A lot of people have said that to me, actually, like, why didn't you just write fiction? I mean, nonfiction. There's a few reasons. I think the biggest reason is that before I got into the law, before I knew what sexual harassment was, when I was a little kid, I dreamed of writing a novel. That was just, and I I became an English major in college. I (laughs) read a lot. I write a lot. So it's kind of like, this is something I've just always wanted to do. I also, I, I tried to make the book realistic in the sense of, I never wanted to be guessing of what this person would be thinking because I wanted to be based on something I've either experienced or someone I've talked to has experienced. But I, it also gives you the license to make things a little more creative, a little more interesting, to conflate different situations that have happened into one character, which I did a lot. You know, Maggie has experienced different things that other people have experienced, but not the same person. So I thought it was an interesting way to do all that. So if you were an aspiring novelist as a young kid, you were also a big reader of fiction? Yes, I was. I, I uh, My mother was an English teacher at the time, and she used uh-huh. to bring home all the books she was teaching And when I was a kid. And I just, I loved it, and I still do. And it's really something that I am just, I've always wanted to write something. Well, how did like, you uh, feel? Novel. Yeah, you sound like it, you're going to say something else about that. But it was oh, harder than I thought, or what were you going to say? Well, no, what I was going to say is, you know, all these ideas have been in my head for a long time. And the book came out Tuesday. So for the first time, people are actually reading it and talking to me about it. People I know, people I don't know. And that is, the so far, it's the best part of having written this is actually talking to people about it. And this, the surreal feeling of this was all in my head and just a few close people had read it. And now it's out there in the world for people to have their opinions on and talk about that. And that's something that I really am really enjoying. I think that's the most enjoyable part of this whole process. So here's something that as someone who reads a lot and interviews a lot of writers, I find it weird that there are a lot of men writing fiction, but there are not nearly as many men reading it. And you are you are clearly the exception here. You were a reader of fiction as a young boy. That's probably the influence of your mother. But I, what do you think happens to your cohort as as men? You know, age, get out of college. Fiction seems for for many to kind of fall away as an essential way to interpret the world around them. And I wonder why. I've thought about that a lot. It, it, a bunch of people have said to me, there's a major poker player in your book, which stereotypically would appeal to men. And people have said to me, it's too bad men don't read novels or else this would have been really good for some men to read who like poker. Like multiple people have said it to me, it's just too bad men don't read or else they would really like this. So I know in book organizations and book groups that I've been a part of, and some of them are online, there are very few men. And I'm not sure why that is. I think that it's something that's a problem because I think fiction is so important. It allows people to learn about other people's experiences in a creative way. And you read a book and you understand something that author either saw or imagined. And for people to be missing out on that, I think it's missing out on a major part of understanding human nature, being a part of society. And I'm not sure why that is, though. Maybe you have some thoughts on it, but I haven't been able to figure out an answer, even though I have put in time thinking about it. You know, the other thing that I find frustrating about this is women readers of fiction read often anybody who's writing fiction, right? Male writers, women writers, 
often, and, and I think this is reflected in what people have been saying to you, men, if they're going to read fiction, often read the fiction that is written by other men. And I'm not sure how we got to a place of that. I have some theories about the way we genderize reading of, you know, of, among young readers. You know, we hand certain books about trucks and trains to boys and we hand books about princesses to girls and we kind of impose a kind of cultural conditioning on reading. What do you think? Well, people definitely do that. I have a seven-year-old daughter and a five-year-old son and I'm very careful to give them access to everything. And, you know, my daughter reads books about football. She occasionally reads Disney stuff also, but she's really deciding, like she has access to everything. And my son too, you know, it's okay if my son wants to read Frozen and my daughter wants to read a book about the New York Yankees. And I think a lot of people are pushing their children or other people. I see that sometimes in gifts that are given to my children, which are very well-meaning. Like here's two coloring books. Here's the basketball coloring book for your son and the princess coloring book for your daughter. <laughs> and, you know, um, I think that's something that I've really tried to avoid. I also think that in fiction, there's an ultra, ultra focus on genre that yeah. kind of steers people to one genre, another genre. And I know that's a question, like I get asked a lot, like what genre is your book? And I generally say political thriller, <laughs> but really? I don't really, I don't really, I see, I don't know what genre it is. I mean, there's a sexual harassment plot line, there's some politics right. going on, but I know that I get, that's a really big thing, especially in marketing of books is what genre is it? What genre is it? And I think there are genres that are the action spy novel that men seem to be drawn to more and are marketed towards men and also, as we know, through social media and Amazon ads, people are hyper-targeted for books that they might be interested in. So when there are ads for a certain thing, it's probably going to be targeted towards men. And if there's a novel that they think is going to be for women, women are going to see it on their social media ads and Amazon ads for that novel. So people are kind of, it's kind of like reinforces the stereotype because you're shown the things that people think you're going to want. Yeah. So we're talking to you from your home. Uh, are there bookshelves? I, I'd imagine as the kind of reader that you are, there are bookshelves in your house. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Although I have transitioned to the Kindle recently, I have oh, to yeah. admit. So I and, and I did that because I travel before COVID. I traveled Nothing a lot for work. Nothing wrong with it was that. So much easier. Yeah. <laughs> You're reading. I know okay. some people. Yeah. So I don't have as many new books on the bookshelf. Okay. Mostly, Understood. But on my e-reader. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I'm curious about if you were to go stand in front of those bookshelves, is there a book that is, I don't know, the most dog-eared, the most loved among the one that you would, you know, probably not even hand to a friend because you'd be worried about getting it back? Is there a book that you feel that way about on your shelves? Oh, that's a great question. Just in the last few years, the... um the, the authors to me that have meant a lot to me that I, I think My Dark Vanessa is an incredible book. And then the books by Emily St. John Mandel, mm -hmm. such as her latest one was The Glass Hotel. She wrote another book called Station Eleven. Um, those are books that I just like loved every word of and I couldn't put down. And if, I, if they're on my Kindle now, but if I had them on a bookshelf and someone wanted them, I would probably say, well, I really like having that on my bookshelf because it, it meant a lot to me to read. Dan, I've right? really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. It's been so much fun and interesting talking with you. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Dan Shore's first novel, debut novel, is called Final Table.